Thanks for joining us for today's sermon. We are always so encouraged to hear how God is working in your life. If the messages of this church have touched you in some way, please share that with us by clicking on the contact tab at lifesc.org to send us an email. And if you would like to give to this ministry, you can do so online to help us bring messages just like this one to you each week. It is our prayer that God blesses you through this message today. As you probably already know, we are in a series, My Story, His Kingdom. And we have been going through many of the parables that Jesus taught while on earth. And this morning, we're going to look at three of those parables that he told. And the story, it's going to be about the story of the lost sheep, the story of the lost coin, and the story of the lost son. Amen. How many know that God loves lost things? I once was lost, but now I am found. Thank you, Jesus. How many can praise him for that? Hallelujah, Jesus. God really loves you no matter where you are, or no matter where you have done, or no matter where you have been. It doesn't matter your age or your race, your political views. He loves you. And he will gladly forgive you and accept you, but you have to come back home to him. And so this morning, I'm going to be, my opening scripture is going to be in Luke chapter 19, verses 10. And it talks about what exactly God came to this earth for. Luke chapter 19, verses 10 says, For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. He has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And so this morning I want to talk to you for a little while on a sermon that I have entitled God's Love for the Lost. God's Love for the Lost. God, I pray that you would speak through me this morning and that you would show us your love. Show us the love that you have for lost things, Jesus, through these parables. I pray that you would open up our eyes and that you would anoint your word and that you would use this sermon for your glory. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, amen. Jesus' name. You may be seated. Luke chapter 15 is all about God's love for the lost. We see in the context, in the first two verses, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered and were complaining. This man welcomes sinners and he even eats with them. In other words, Jesus got into trouble with the Pharisees because he hung around sinful people. And it was in response to that accusation that Jesus told these three stories. And this is nothing new. This is, this is the same old thing that we've, we've been seeing all the way through, through Jesus' ministry. The criticism and, and the doubt. Sinners came to Jesus because he came to seek and to save that which was lost. And it did not matter what kind of people they were. They were part of the human race. And so God received them and he embraced them and he loved them and he forgave them and he gave them eternal life. And this outraged these religious leaders. Outraged them. And the fact that Jesus ate with these sinners is what outraged them the most. Because in the Bible times, eating with somebody was a sign of approval and affirmation. 
especially if you were a rabbi or a Pharisee or some other kind of spiritual leader. The rabbis used to say they ate with people, and whenever they ate with anybody, they conveyed to that person affirmation and spiritual blessing. And so Jesus eating with sinners was a way to give, uh, give approval to them in, their, in the Pharisees' eyes. And so here they are again making the same complaint against Jesus, completely misunderstanding his heart for the lost. And Jesus answers their murmurings with these three stories. And he was using these stories to say, listen guys, I, I hang around with sinful people because God loves them and he wants them to come back home. And in these three stories, Jesus shows us how he feels about lost people. And in the first story, you are the sheep and God is the shepherd. And in the second story, you are the coin and God is the widow. And in the third story, you are the lost son and God is the father. And so Jesus told them this um, parable in verses 4. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country to, and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and, and, and goes home. And then he calls his friend and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who do not repent. Jesus draws them in by making the first two, bar the first two parables, these first two stories, questions. Not only are they questions, but he draws them in secondly by asking questions as if they were that, that person in the story drawing them into the experience and, and the thinking of the characters and so that they really play this in their minds. And so this first parable is about a shepherd. Okay, the word is never really used there, but it's clearly about a shepherd. And shepherds, if you remember, were the lowest of people. They were the outcasts. They were the unclean in the society of Jews. And so what he says to them is so interesting. What man among you... If he has 100 sheep and has lost, one, has lost one of them. This is actually really offensive to them because he speaks to them as if they were the shepherd in the story. Or the sheep in the story. And the very thought of putting them in that role would be very offensive to them. No law abiding Jew, no Jew who is, ever, who is a Pharisee or a scribe would ever become a shepherd, nor would any Pharisee or scribe even like to think of himself hypothetically as one. And that would be demeaning and unclean in their minds. And so now they weren't a lot, there weren't a lot of rules about shepherding. But there was one very dominant rule, and, and that is you don't lose sheep. You don't lose sheep. And that was the big one. And if one goes away, you find it and you bring it back alive or dead you bring it back. But you don't come back without a sheep. Everybody knew that, and the Pharisees knew that. And that's what shepherding was. It was making sure that you took care of those very, very valuable sheep. The one you lost may have belonged to a family who, had, who only had two. And so you took on that responsibility as a shepherd. And, and so when he asked the question, what man among you 
Let's say you're shepherds. That just must have irritated them so deeply. But let's say for the sake of a question that you're shepherds and you have 100 sheep that you're responsible for and you've lost one of them. What man doesn't leave that 99 in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? Nobody in this story is going to say, well, we got 99 left. It's not a big deal. Everybody knew what a shepherd's responsibility was. He must leave. And this is the duty. This is the resp his responsibility. And he goes on at the end of verse 4 until he finds it. And everybody would say, of course, he goes after it. Of course, everybody knows that. No man among us would do anything different than that. If we were shepherds, God forbid, that's exactly what we would do because that's what shepherds do. Lost sheep, by the way, are always in a lot of danger. Sheep are actually very stupid. How many of you know that sheep are stupid? See them at the zoo, at the farms. Did you also know that there are many places in the Bible that uh, we are referred to as sheep? True story. They are defenseless. Sheep have no self-defense mechanism. If they fall over on their side, guess what? They can't get up. They are hopeless and they are helpless. And just like us, when we wander, when we wander away from, from the great shepherd, we are in a lot of danger. And the sheep that wandered off would be in danger from predators, in danger from a fall, from exhaustion, from dehydration. And so the Pharisees and the scribes would understand the necessity of the action that the shepherd took. And verses 5 says, And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it onto his shoulders and he goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Amen. And of course, we couldn't be talking about you because you don't need to repent. You are Pharisees and you are perfect. You see, the sinners who repent is like the sheep, helpless. And they understand he is helpless and he understands that he is in danger and that he is weak and in need and, and that he is, in he, is, he is in desperation. And he recognizes his need for a savior and for a great shepherd. And this is the contrast to the 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. You see, the Pharisees and the scribes had nothing to do with the purpose of God. Nothing to do with the work of God. They were brainwashed into thinking that they didn't need to repent. They are the 99 in this story. They are the 99 self-righteous who do not know the heart of God. And this sheep was lost because of its wandering. Lost because of its own foolishness. Lost because it followed its appetite and went astray. Lost because it nibbled its way further and further away from the shepherd. Lost because it thought the grass was greener in another pasture. The sheep had absolutely no idea just how lost it was until it was too late. And then it became afraid. But the one good thing about the sheep is that it began to cry out. And the shepherd was able to leave the 99 and eventually find it. You see, at least the dumb sheep had the intelligence to know that it was lost.
That doesn't say a lot for a lot of us. Did you know there are many verses in the Bible comparing humanity to sheep? 2 Chronicles 18, 16. I'm just going to run through a few of them. Sheep that have no shepherd. Psalm 23, 1. The Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 100, verse 3. We are the sheep of his pasture. Isaiah 40, 11. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. Jeremiah 23.1, woe to those who scatter the sheep. Ezekiel 34.5, sheep scattered because there is no shepherd. Ezekiel 34.6, sheep wandered through all the mountains. Ezekiel 34.11, I will search for my sheep and I will seek them out. That's a lot of sheep. There's actually over 200 references in the Bible pertaining to sheep. And continuing in verse 8, or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and she loses one. This is the next parable. One of these silver coins was worth about a day's wages. And women were, give, were given what they were called a, a dowry by, by their fathers or on occasion by their husbands who would even give them a dowry. And women would act, this was act as their security for their future. And some of these women would put those around their neck in a necklace and they would run a, a cord through the coins that were pierced. Or they would put a bag with these coins in them and they would, they would tie it up tightly and they would keep this on the person. And this would be their future. What happens if their husband dies? If their husband is ill? If their husband has a disaster? Or if their family has a disaster? This is their security. And so she lost one of her coins on her dowry. And in a poor village family, which is where she was from, this amount is significant. And there's not only the duty of being responsible for her dowry, but this has real value. A woman knew she was responsible. She knew this was a great loss and there was really no option. And so he asked the question that is going to demand a right answer. What woman? If you were this woman and you lost one of those coins, what would you do? And the Pharisees would know that she had only one choice. You wouldn't say, ah, it doesn't matter. I have nine, more, nine others. This is a poor family. And it had more than just a sentimental value. And verse 8 continues, Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And she finds it, and she calls her friend and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. And in the same way, I tell you, there is more rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Here again, Jesus is saying, I'm doing this because this is what brings joy to me. He gets no joy out of your 99 self-righteous people. His joy is in the recovery of a repenting sinner that you do not associate with. Amen. And you see, the coin was not lost like the sheep was. But lost even though very close at hand although it was in the house although it was in the church it was buried in the dirt although it was in the house it lay dormant although it was in the house it was not in the owner's possession and the bridal dowry was incomplete and lacking without it the coin had the same appearance as the other nine did but it was not in its proper place and so it was lost and as long as the coin was lost, it was alone. 
And there's no place lonelier than being around the church without being a part of the church. To be lost means to be out of place. And that's how we feel when our external religion does not match our internal reality. Sheep and coins and sons were not meant to be lost and alone. They were meant to be part of a sheepfold, a dowry, and a family that is much bigger than themselves. Otherwise, their purpose remains unfulfilled. Jesus continued in verse 11, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed so much to fill his stomach with the, with the corn cobs that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men would have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. And I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and I have sinned against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired men. Make me one of your slaves. And so he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is now found. And so they began to celebrate. And these two sons were not slaves. They were not servants. They were sons. And it is actually our story. The story of the prodigal is not a story about sin, it is a story about being lost. And although this is often called the parable of the prodigal son, the key figure in, the, in this parable is actually the father. It is a parable of the loving father. Jesus is teaching us that the God of this universe is like the father in this story. And it's not enough to believe just in God. You must understand the nature of God. The character of God can be easily seen in this parable. And the word prodigal means wasteful. Once the son left the restraint of his fathers, he became reckless and wasteful. But life in the distant country was not at all what he had expected. While he had money, he had friends, everything was good, but when his resources were gone, so were his friends. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? That's the type of world that we live in today. They will like you, they will accept you, as long as you have something of value to them. But as soon as you do not have what they want, as soon as you are in need, they are gone. 
and he joined himself to a citizen who sent him to feed pigs. The lowest humiliation for a Jewish boy. This is what sin does. It promises freedom, but it only brings slavery. It promises success, but it only brings failure. It promises life, but the wages of sin is death. And in this story, the younger son demanded to receive his inheritance, although his father is still alive. Normally they receive it just like most of us do. We receive an inheritance after they pass away. But according to Jewish law, a father who had two sons was to leave two-thirds of his estate to his older son and one-third to his younger son. And this younger son came to his dad and basically said, I know you're going to drop dead someday, but I don't want to wait. Give it to me now. The father was wounded by this harsh demand, but he granted it anyway. He probably had to take some time to sell some of his land and maybe some of his livestock and liquidate some of his assets, but he eventually comes up with one-third of his net worth and he hands it to this younger son. And immediately the son takes the money and he runs. He walks out of his father's house, his walks out of his life and heads for the far country. Here's a perfect example of a rebellious, disrespectful child. We can't tell from the way that he wel- we can tell from the way that he welcomed him back that the father's heart was broken when his son left home. And I think the father shed many tears over his son's foolish behavior. And he knew that it was going to get him into trouble. And clearly the father in this parable represents God. He is a loving father who will let you walk away from a relationship with him if you desire, but it breaks his heart when you do. God is our father and we are his children. And there's a very important principle that you must understand. You cannot stop God's love for you, but you can certainly hurt your relationship with him. And the whole time the prodigal son was away, he was still a son, but he had left the presence and the favor of his father. And just as, as he did, we as Christians tend to do the same. Once you become a Christian, God establishes this relationship with you, and he is your father, and, and nothing can ever change that. But if you choose to rebel and disobey him, he will allow it. He will never leave you nor forsake you, but we can ignore him, and he will let you do what you want. You see, God is saying that I love you so much that you are free to go. God loves you so much that he will never force you to stay in a relationship with him. And so if you are bound and determined to do something as foolish as walking out on God, he will not stop you. And that's how some get into a mess that they're in. And he doesn't really course obedience and loyalty from you. He wants you to freely love and to serve him. And many people will grow bitter toward God and blame God for their issues People also do not understand why God does not step in and stop bad things from happening or stop you from doing bad things. We say, doesn't God have all the power? But God didn't stop bad things from happening to us for the same reason that he didn't stop Adam and Eve from eating the fruit. And he didn't stop it for the same reason that he did not stop King David from having sex with Bathsheba. 
God didn't stop it for the same reason that the father in this parable didn't fling himself across the door and say, stop it, son, I will not let you leave. That's not the nature of the God that we serve. He loves you so much and he allows you to make your own choices even though he knows what the consequences will be. Just as the father grieved because his son walked out, even so our heavenly father grieves when one of his children walk out of having a relationship with him. And so you see the younger son was very rebellious. He knew what he wanted. His desires led him to gamble all in getting what God condemned. And he loved sin because it promised satisfaction to his appetite and to his ambitions. And he was hypnotized by what the world was promising him. I find it so crazy on how we get tricked by what the world promises. The Bible says that he will give us life and life more abundantly, but somehow, sometimes, we are still consumed by the desires of this world. And it is fun for a season, no doubt, but it is not what it is all cracked up to be. And the prodigal son learns this the hard way. He rebels against his father. He shows that he is dissatisfied with his father's vision and his father's rules and his father's guidance. And some of you might be parents of prodigals. Those of you who have prodigal children or, or maybe grandchildren in your family know the kind of pain that this father felt. You know what it is to have, uh, have grown children who are alienated from you. And it simply hurts. And when they were little, you could discipline them. But now, you only feel the pain. And I want you to know that this morning, God hurts even more. Why? Because the greater the capacity to love, the greater capacity to be hurt. And God's love is stronger than any human love, and that's why his pain is greater. The lost son didn't work out so good in the far country. He lived the careless life that he wanted to live without thinking about his future. But pretty soon he was down and out, and he was broke, and he had nothing. And Jesus uses six words in verses 13 to describe what happened. He squandered his wealth in wild living. He squandered his wealth in wild living. There's a lot that can be read into from, from those words. It was a pocket full of money. He headed straight for the casinos, the bars, strip joints, and he blew all of his funds. But before he could turn around, it was all gone. And he ended up in a pig pen feeding the pigs. Jesus said he came to his senses and he realized a servant in his father's house had it better than he did. And all of his father's farmhands got three meals a day and he couldn't even eat the corn cobs that the pigs were eating. And he finally reached this point of total desperation. And so he swallowed something more tasteless than corn cobs. He swallowed his pride, and so he started the long journey back home to his father. John 8, 34 through 36 says, Jesus said, I tell you most solemnly that anyone who chooses a life of sin is trapped in a dead end life and is in fact a slave. A slave is transient who can't come and go at will. The son though has an established position, the run of the house. So if the son sets you free, you are free through and through. And if he had only thought about himself and his situations, 
the prodigal son would have experienced regret or remorse, but no repentance. You see, repentance involves the will and not just the emotions that I will arise and I will go. He left home with the words, give me my inheritance, but he returned with the words, make me a servant. And he had experienced a complete change of attitude. And when, we really changed, or what, when he really changed his mind, he was willing to change his direction. And that's real repentance. 2 Corinthians 7 verses 10, For God can use sorrow in our lives to help us turn away from sin and to seek salvation. We will never regret the, that kind of sorrow, but sorrow without repentance is the kind that results in death. But what you will find interesting in this story is how the father receives him. There is a very similar story to, to this exist, that existed among uh, the Jewish rabbis for many years before Jesus even told it. And in the earlier form, the younger son ran away and spent all of his father's money. And when he came crawling home, the father rejected him. And so as Jesus was telling this story to the Pharisees and the tax collectors, they were thinking, yeah, I've heard this one before. And his audience of Pharisees and tax collectors expected him to say, one day the father saw his son returning and he waited with his arms crossed. And the broken down son begged his father to take him back. But the father looked away from him and said, forget it. You had your chance. You've chosen to live a life. A life. Now live like it. Live like a pig, and you've made your bed, now lie in it. And in the original story, the father turned his son away, and he told him he was getting exactly what he deserved. It was a story reflecting the Old Testament idea of strict legalism. And in fact, the Old Testament described that a father could have a rebellious son stoned to death. Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21 says, If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey, his father and his mother shall bring him to the elders and say, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is, a waste, he is wasteful and drunk. And then all the men shall stone him to death. And some of you might have rebellious teenage sons and may think this is a great verse. <laughs> And that was the way the Pharisees expected the father in the story to treat his son. But that's not how it happened. That's the normal ending of the story. But Jesus gives a surprise twist to the plot. And now picture the father in Jesus' parable. His heart was broken when his son had left him. Every day while he was gone, the father thought of the son and wondered where he was and what he was doing. And each afternoon, about sundown, he would walk to the edge of his property and stand at his stone fence and look down the road that had taken his son away. And he was looking and he was longing and hoping that one day his son would return. And then one afternoon, he sees a bent over figure dragging along the side of the road. And he, he's thinking to himself that this can't be my son because my son always held his head high. And besides, this character was dressed in rags. And my son was always dressed in fine clothing. But as he continued, there was something about the figure that looked familiar. And in a flash, the father realized it was his son. And then he did an amazing thing. He jumped the stone fence and he sprinted out to meet his son. And verse 20 says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. 
And then it says, he was filled with compassion and he ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. And in, this, in the Jewish culture, men were, wore long robes. In order for a man to run, he would have to lift the hem up and hold it high to keep from tripping over it. And in doing so, he would, he would show his legs, which was considered highly undignified. Men of respect never ran, and it would have been embarrassing. But can't you see this father grabbing handfuls of robe and running towards his son? He didn't wait for the son to reach him. He ran to meet his son, and he hugged him, and he kissed him, and, and he kissed this re rebellious son of his. Remember the son who had been working in the pig pen, and he looked and he probably smelled awful. Not exactly the kind of person that you'd want to hug and kiss. And the father could have said, oh, you're, you're back, good. Clean yourself up and, and come into the house. But instead, the father accepted him just as he was. And so why did, why did Jesus change the ending? Because at some point it has to stop being about the sin and it has to start being about the sinner. And when you start home, God will never meet you more than halfway. God, the creator of the universe, will welcome you the same way just as you are. And now this is a direct portrayal of God. Jesus said God runs to meet us when we decided to, re to return to him. And some of you have maybe thought about leaving your relationship with God. You have maybe already walked away from the presence of your heavenly father. You see, whenever you choose to sin and disobey God... You are leaving his presence. And right now, you may sense God is, is far away from you. And let me tell you something. God didn't walk away from you. When you sinned, you walked away from him. And Isaiah 59, 1 through 2 says, Listen, the Lord is not too weak to save you, and he is not becoming deaf. He can hear you when you call. But there is a problem. Your sins have cut you off from God. Because of your sin, he has turned away and will not listen anymore. God is a loving fa heavenly father who is longing for you to return. He is looking for you to return to him. And if you have thought about backsliding, God wants you to know that when you start back home he will meet you more than halfway amen and and now I want you to know it was it was different with the elder son he liked it at home and not that he loved his father like the rest of us he wanted uh, to have his own way he thought he was smart enough to manage his father and to get out of him what he wanted and he loved himself too much to be interested in pleasing anybody but himself. And he was full of pride and he was full of himself. And many times we hear about the prodigal son, but we do not hear about his brother. And I want to tell you this morning that although the prodigal was outright sinful, he was not the only son with a huge problem. You see, both sons sought to please themselves. And this is the nature of the world that we live in today. The older son is explained, starting in verse 28, he became angry when his, when his brother came home. He did not want to go to the celebration of the return of his brother, even after his father pleaded with him. In verse 29, he said, he told his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. And verse 30 says, 
but this son of yours. Notice he doesn't say, my brother. He says, your son. He has wasted your money with prostitutes. And we have all been prodigal or, or wasteful of God's gifts. And we have all received of him, yet, have we, yet we live as though God had never died for us. We have lived with this self-centeredness away, with, away from the compassionate, loving heart and home of our Heavenly Father. And I want, to, I want you to notice this morning the two different roads that these sons took. The younger son was the type whose lostness is obvious. It is obvious to the brother and to others. And he is not at home. He is in the far country and he is in the world being rebellious. He is not a worker. He is a waster. He is not lifting up. He is dragging down. He is not creating. He is destroying. And why did this young man go into the far country and get involved in the things of this world? There was only one explanation. He went away because he was seeking to please himself. And he was so intent on pleasing himself that he had no thought for any loss or pain that might come to himself or to anyone else for that matter. Self-pleasing is oftentimes a key component to sin. Self-pleasing also comes at a cost and it can be very expensive. The person who is all about pleasing themselves will pay a price. If self-pleasing becomes your God, it will hurt you. It will also hurt others. And no man has ever sinned without wounding somebody else. And it could cost you the relationship with your parents and all the joys of being home. And it could cost you your freedom, which is actually very ironic because it was freedom that he went out to seek. He said, give me my inheritance. But when he came to his senses and his heart was broken, he said, make me a servant. You see, it could cost you everything. The story says that he spent all that he had. And certain things stand out about the elder brother as well. His whole attitude shows that his years of obedience to his father had been years of duty and not of loving service. He referred to his brother as your son. And he also falsely accused his brother. There was never any mention of prostitutes until he brings them up. And so I want to tell you this morning that Jesus, just because you are here in church does not mean that you are not lost, as was this older son. You see, his type is seldom looked at as being lost, or as being lost, because both himself and others see this other side of him. And this makes his condition all the more hopeless. You see, he is not away in the distant land in the world, backslidden, as is the case with his brother, but he is just as lost, if not even more lost. And he was, an he was in an environment that is wholesome and supportive, like the church. He was not a waster, as was his brother. He was a worker. The fact that he was in the field indicates that he was there to plant seeds, and the elder brother did indeed have some good characteristics which deserve respect. Socially, he did not bring a bad name to his father. He had resisted all physical temptations and he had good conduct. He did not gamble all his money. He obeyed his father's rules. He did not go out into the world looking for empty promises. But this elder brother had missed 
the high qualities in his father's life. He simply could not understand his father's patience and grieve over the younger brother's absence from home. His heart had become so frozen by selfish conceit that he lacked understanding and compassion. And his brother was an outright sinner. He himself was righteous. His brother deserved nothing except to be abused and abandoned, but the elder brother deserved to be praised and honored. And he was an utter stranger to what his brother had suffered because of his sin. But the elder brother had no sympathy with his father or his brother, and his father grieved over the fact that his younger son is in the far country, but this elder brother does not grieve. The older brother could care less about his younger brother. And so when the prodigal returns, his father rejoices greatly, but the elder brother does not even care. And he has no love for the father or for his brother. And it was the sins of the flesh, lust, gluttony, and sloth that overwhelmed the, this brother. And it was the sins of the spirit, pride, covetousness, envy, and anger that took captive the older brother. And they are sins perhaps more deadly than the sins of the flesh. Basically, these sins of the spirit are born of a conceit that makes all desires seem righteous and good. And in the day they, were, they are repelled, or in the end, they are repelled by the sins of others and they are proud of their own. And the sins of the spirit easily deceive the public and those who are in, the, their, uh, in power into thinking either that they are harmless or as a matter of fact that they are more desirable. And it is difficult to help this type of sinner realize their own sin. And therefore both sons had revolted against their father, the younger from parental control and the elder from parental love. And each wanted the same thing to have their own way. And it, all, it is always like that. It is costly to be in the world. Cast both your relationships with God and your freedom, which is, which is ironic because that's what he left to find. But instead he ended up a slave and, and the one who stayed home was a slave to his own desires. It cost them everything. The younger spent all and the older never ever enjoyed what he had. You see, there were two prodigal sons. One left the house and wasted his inheritance, but the other stayed in the house and wasted his inheritance. And in all these years, he had worked hard, but never once enjoyed a party with his father. He was a son, but he acted like a slave. He needed to repent of his attitude and return to the father's house just as much as this younger brother. And he had nothing to lose by his brother's return, but he had grown too protective of the father's house. He did, he did his father's will, but not from the heart. He was, so, he was also lost, and, and there is no evidence in the Bible that the older brother came back, but the younger did. And I want to tell you this morning that one of the hardest things in this world is to stop being the prodigal son without turning into the elder brother. The hardest thing in this world is to stop being the prodigal son without turning into the elder brother. And the younger brother realized his desperate condition, but the elder did not. And I tell you this morning, do not end up like the elder brother. 
The younger brother could have recognized his circumstances and, and, and returned, but he, he made a decision that he was going to come back home. He could have never returned. And God is saying this morning to come home and that he loves you and he wants you and he wants to wrap you in his loving arms. Psalms 103, 11 through 12 says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Isn't, God, isn't our God awesome? He is a God who regrets your rebellion, who runs when you return, and who restores you when you repent. But there are some of you today who need a different word from this parable. You aren't one of those lost sons, and instead you feel the pain of the father, and some of you are parents and grandparents, and, and you know of people who have, who have prodigals in their family, and your son or your daughter may be distant from you because of a rebellion or, or disagreement or a sinful lifestyle, maybe a bad relationship, or they may have just walked out of your life. And whatever the reason you feel the pain of being out of, out of a relationship with, with them, the parent, I want to talk to the parents of the prodigals. I would say, number one, that God understands your pain. And God knows and he cares. And he is, he is the suffering father in this parable and he died for them. And no one loves your kids more than God does. And he is the only one that can change a life. And so I tell you this morning that, to let God be God and, and to pray for them and to love on them. And he gave because he loved we need to remember to do the same. Love them. Not the sin or their lifestyle, but love them. And number two, be your child's biggest fan. Regardless of what they are doing or not doing, you are for them. It's the goodness of God that draws men unto repentance. Amen. Number three, don't jump into the pig pen to rescue them. In this parable, the father didn't go to the pig pen and try to pull his son out. That would have been tragic. The son had to realize his own mistake. God used the pig pen to bring him into the realization. You see, if he would have rescued him out of the pig pen, he just would have gone to a bigger pig pen. And a lot of times we do that when our, when our kids are in trouble. We go and we save them and we, we help them and, and that's only enabling. And some of you have kids in that pig pen right now and you want to run and you want to rescue them, but let me tell you, they must come to their own point of total desperation before they seek God for themselves. Romans 2, 3 through 4, And thinkest thou this, O man, that judges them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God, or despisest thou thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. You see, not constantly reminding them that they are sinning or preaching to them every time that you are around them. Live a godly life and, and, and be an example. Be consistent in your walk with God and be interested in them and their life as best as you can. And number four, do not blame yourself. While kids can certainly be affected by different parenting styles, and some of these styles could have possibly contributed to the state your child is in, but blaming yourself will not solve anything. 
ask God to show you if you, are, if you have or are currently doing anything that could contribute in their current walk. You are the Christian that your kids are watching. And even when you think they are not, they are watching. Don't stay at the cross over your mistakes in parenting. And when children enter the prodigal world, we tend to think it's because that we did something wrong. Proverbs 22.6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is, done, when he is old, he will not, return, or will not turn from it. But this scripture was never meant to be a guilt trip, nor as a guarantee. Sure, we make mistakes, but ultimately kids will make their own choices. And number five, know that you are really not fighting your child. You are fighting the devil. Ephesians 6, know your enemy. Your child is not backslidden to make your life miserable. They are not set out to destroy you. The adversary of your soul, of our soul, is, is out to destroy them. And he wants your family. Number six, let them know that the door is always open. Don't go to the pig pen, but never slam the door and tell your child that they are never welcome back into your home. Let them know that you'll leave the light on for them and whenever they are ready to repent. And as you continue to love and you pray for your child, have faith that your child is, is God's work in progress. And just like you, we are a work in progress. Number seven, receive them when they repent. An honest relationship can never be restored until your prodigal child has repented. They may return but if they don't repent, your problem is not solved. It's only aggravated. And so parents of prodigals, don't give up on your child. Keep praying and keep believing. And that goes for any, any brothers or sisters in the church as well. Some, some people see God as, as some mean ogre who sits on this throne watching you, just waiting for you to make this mistake and so he can grab you and say, I got you now. But that's not the God we serve. Instead, he is a loving, compassionate God who deeply cares about every one of you. And he is no respecter of persons. And so he loves all of us the same. Amen. John chapter 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Lost people matter to God. And they must matter to us. It was Jesus who told us to leave the 99 and to look for the one. It was Jesus who said to keep looking until we find them. And it was Jesus who said that one sinner repenting causes more excitement in heaven than all of our great services, all of our conferences, all of our camp meetings put together. My question this morning is, are you lost? You may have no sense of direction, no familiar landmarks. You don't know how to get home because you don't know where you are. And a map serves little help if you do not know the starting point. You can look at a map and see where you think you are and where you want to go. But until you know where you are, you are not able to get where you need to go. But this morning I want to tell you that I have good news. Because the starting point is repentance. God is full of love and mercy, and we read earlier that the Father ran. The compassion of God is followed by swift movements, and he is slow to anger, but he is quick to bless. 
God comes flying in the greatness of his compassion to help every poor soul that returns to him. And that's what, really, that's what God is really like. And so we worship a God who regrets our rebellion and runs to us when we return. And finally, we worship willing to say, Jesus, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Are you willing to return to him? And if, if you are, he has a message for you. He is saying, I will treat you as if you have never left. If you need forgiveness today, Jesus offers it. Think again at verse 1 in this chapter to see who Jesus was speaking to. Some were Pharisees who thought they were sinless. They, they thought that they didn't need forgiveness. But they were tax collectors and other sinners there as well. Jesus was trying to tell them God is like a father who will welcome you and lovingly forgive you. And when you come home to him, if you repent of your sin. So when the prodigal finally came to his senses in this pig pen, the son rehearsed the speech that he was going to give his dad. He said three things in verse 21. And two of his statements were right. One of them was wrong. First, he said, I have sinned against heaven. And that was right. Primarily, primarily all sin is against God. And so he confessed his sin to God. Second, he confessed to his father, I have sinned against you. And he was right there. One of the hardest things for any of us is to say, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? And that's what he was saying. But look at the third statement. He said, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And they may sound good and all, but there is a mistake in his thinking. You see, he, was, he never was worthy to be called a son of his. And since he didn't think he deserved to be a son, he was ready to ask his father to just make him like one of his servants. You see, the point is, he never deserved to be a son. It was all about grace. And in the same way, none of us are ever worthy to be called a child of God. It is all by grace. And the father refused to entertain this idea that his son would be a servant. Even when the son was in a far country, God still loved him. And it was the relationship that was broken. And immediately the father commanded his servants to bring the best robe. He took that beautiful robe and, and lovingly placed it around his son, covering all of his filth and all of his dirt and all of his mistakes. And that's a picture of how God covers our sin with a robe of righteousness. Sons often wore family rings that had the family seal engraved upon it. Stamping the ring in wax was like a signature. And the son probably left with a ring, but he had pawned it off long ago. The father put a new ring on his finger, symbolizing his full status in his family. Slaves didn't wear shoes, but sons did. And so the father had sandals to put on his son's feet. And here's the bonus. The father commanded the, that the fattened calf to be killed so that he could celebrate the son's return. And the fact that the father had been putting, or that he had been fattening up this calf makes me think that he anticipated the return of his son. 
And everything that the son left looking for, he found back at his father's house. The father's love for his rebellious son had never changed, but the son came back a changed man. And he would forever carry the scars and the regrets of his sinful behavior. But God is saying this morning, I will treat you as if you never left. And I will invite you back into my family. And I will clean away any sins and I will put a robe around you and my arms, my loving arms around you and I will love you because that is the kind of God that we serve. Hallelujah, Jesus. You may stand this morning. And if there's somebody here that has a prodigal son or they know someone who's, who's backslidden, I, I want you to pray this morning for them. Come to the altar in their place. Jesus, I ask that you would rescue us as, as a shepherd rescues a stray lamb. Lord, I pray for your supernatural love. I pray for your love to draw us back to repentance. Lord, I thank you for your grace. I thank you that we do not have to, have to come to you with guilt or with shame, but that you will forgive us. Lord, I pray that your grace would keep our mouths closed and our hearts open with love and compassion to those who are lost in sin. Lord, I pray that you would give us the endurance that we need to intercede for our prodigals. Lord, I pray that you would help us to know that it can take months, maybe even years, to see the fruit of intercession for our prodigals. But Lord, I pray for famine in the prodigal's life. I pray that whatever or whoever the prodigal is placing their trust in outside of you, that it would dry up. Lord, I pray that what once brought them pleasure would become dry and barren to them. I pray that the prodigal would become homesick. Lord, I pray that they would come back home, that they would begin to remember what it was like to be in a healthy relationship with you and your church and to start to long for it even while they are deep in sin. Lord, and I pray against the delusion the enemy has trapped them in. Lord, I bring them into a spirit of repentance. Lord, I will arise and, I, and go to my Father. Lord, repentance brings life. It brings freedom. It brings a breakthrough. And it brings delivery. Lord, I pray that the prodigal will be able to receive your forgiveness. Lord, I know that some prodigals may have lived very sinful lives and that they can't imagine th that you would ever want them back. Lord, that they feel that they have crossed some sort of imaginary line that you would not be able to bless them. Lord, I pray that you would pour out your riches when the prodigal returns. And I pray that you would lavish your love and blessings on them. I pray that the elder that I pray for the, the elder brother, Lord. I pray that we as the church will be prepared to receive prodigals back when they have come. Judgmental attitudes must go. Jesus, I pray against jealousy and envy as you pour out your blessings on them. Lord, I pray that we as a church will have the grace to accept those who know not what they do. And I pray that the prodigals who have literally lived in the pig pen of sin would, have, would be loved back into your kingdom. 
in Jesus' name.